Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Checking in about food allergies and introducing allergenic foods. And have you done peanut with your baby yet? Well, intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters like peanut butter are choking hazards for babies, but we want to get that peanut protein into your baby early and often in order to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. My absolute favorite way to introduce peanuts for babies is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. So When you hear puffs, like you're probably like, oh, those starchy little puff things. Like, no, no, no. Not the little ones that earlier eaters can't pick up. Those kind of crappy puffs from the store that have added sugar and refined grains and lots of salt. Uh uh. The Puffworks baby peanut puffs have no added sugar. They have just a smidge of sodium for preservatives, and they are the perfect size for baby led weaning. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger. So, you can, baby can pick them up, self-feed them, but they're so soft that they dissolve in your baby's mouth so you can introduce these peanut puffs even before your baby has teeth. Puffworks also makes a baby almond puff for the safe introduction of a separate allergenic food category. That's tree nuts. And now, finally, Puffworks put out a combo case. So it's half baby peanut and half baby almond. So if you want to grab one case, then you can knock out two new allergenic foods. We do these on different days, though. These are just the no-stress, low-mess way to get peanut and tree nut out of the way. So you can get 15% off everything at puffworks.com when you use the affiliate discount code BLWPOD. That's a new code. It's BLWPOD. Use that sucker at checkout at puffworks.com and get peanut and tree nut safely out of the way. Balance is critical. Learning how to balance your sources of carbohydrate at your meals and your snacks with the other nutrients. So your fats, your proteins, and your fiber. We need to create that balance. And then the other aspect is going to be kind of personalizing the portion size for you. So I can't sit here and say every pregnant person that I see is going to tolerate the same amount of carbohydrate at a meal or at a snack. Through the glucose monitoring, we're going to learn what's the portion size that your body can personally handle. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Do you guys remember that super sugary, gross drink you had to swallow when you were pregnant in order to screen for gestational diabetes? Some of you might have locked it out, but some of you are probably either dealing with gestational diabetes right now, you had it in a previous pregnancy, you might have it in a future pregnancy. And it's scary because your blood sugar is going haywire during pregnancy and even after there are serious medical implications. And my guest today is Casey Seiden. She's a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes care and education specialist. That's the credential that was formerly known as the CDE or the Certified Diabetes Educator. So I'm also a dietitian and have that same CDCES credential. I used to work with adult diabetes management, totally different than what Casey does. She's working primarily with high-risk OB patients, essentially pregnant and postpartum women who either have gestational diabetes or had it. 
So Casey has a private practice located in the New York, New Jersey area. She's a mom of two children. She's got Maddie, who's two and a half, and Paige, who is seven months. So Casey is a baby led weaning mom, just like you. She's in the thick of it right now. She did baby led weaning with Maddie, her older one, who she said like loved eating everything, still loves eating. Her current baby, seven months old, Paige, they're really just getting the hang of it. She's a little timid and more slow to take to self-feeding is what Casey said. She really loves breastfeeding, having trouble getting her in the high chair and staying there. Very typical, but she knows just kind of, you know, sit there, let it happen. Don't stress out about it. No need to rush your baby. If you guys are dealing with that, she'll be sharing a little bit about how you, how she's managing as well. So Casey's going to be answering a lot of questions about gestational diabetes and how you screen for it, how you manage it with diet and carbohydrate and spacing of carbs. I think you'll really enjoy learning from her because I know I was just blown away by in this interview how she could take really complicated topics and she has like a very uncanny knack for like simplifying them, but still like not dumbing it down, but making it in layman's terms so we can all understand it, make the adjustments to our diet as needed and get on with our lives. So with no further ado, here is diabetes educator and dietitian Casey Seiden teaching us about managing blood sugars and gestational diabetes. Same. I'm excited to be here. That's kind of picking your brain about your own kids and your personal life before we started, but tell us a little bit about your professional life. What's your background? How did you get involved working in diabetes and in particular gestational diabetes? Yes. So I became a dietitian, gosh, it's been almost seven years ago now. Um, And I originally started working out in the diabetes population, but with older adults. Um, So I worked in more low-income communities, doing a lot of pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and all the comorbidities that came with that. So I worked there for about two and a half, almost three years. And then really the opportunity to start to work in the space that I'm in now, prenatal nutrition and gestational diabetes, kind of just fell into my lap um, from a former coworker. And I thought, okay, this is still diabetes related, but it's a totally different population. It's working all with women. I was actually also at the same time going through my own fertility journey and, you know, women's health related issues. And so it all just kind of coalesced, took that job and fell in love with working with pregnant women, women trying to conceive um, while still helping them to manage their blood sugars. That was kind of the theme that was consistent across a lot of the women that I work with was blood sugar management. So what was it that you love so much about working with that population? Like what sparked that like love for you? It's a very motivated population for the most part. Like they're coming to me. That's a good point. Like I know we're not supposed to say non-compliant anymore, but like I just remember when I was in an adult nutrition and had private practice and was doing diabetes, like nobody listens to me. Yeah. I hate that word non-compliant. Yeah. But I know, I know you're not allowed to use it, but like the opposite of non-compliance is like, oh, they really like being here and listening to me. Yeah. They're highly motivated. So, you know, they wanted to do the very best by themselves and and for their baby. And I just thought pregnancy was such a cool time. And it was something that I, at the time and twice now could personally relate to with my clients, not having diabetes or gestational diabetes, but being pregnant and going through all the changes and things that go along with that. It was just nice to kind of bond with women as a woman, you know, or pregnant people in that sense as well. So some of our listeners might be familiar with like the term gestational diabetes. In a nutshell, like summarize it. What is gestational diabetes? How common is it? So gestational diabetes is a state of essentially carbohydrate intolerance where at the end of the second trimester, start of the third, around that kind of 26, 28 week mark, your placenta will start to produce these hormones that is going to make the mom very resistant to her own insulin, which is that blood sugar lowering hormone. So that means that the sugar that you, we, you know, goes into our bloodstream, usually from food that we consume, 
hangs out in mom's blood, but with gestational diabetes and all these hormones, the sugar just kind of gets passed along back to the placenta. And I think we're going to talk about kind of what are the implications of having this diagnosis um, for mom and baby. That's essentially what's happening. So Casey, what are some risk factors for gestational diabetes? I know it's not like a one size fits all, but who's going to be more likely to have this diagnosis? Right. And to touch on your previous point, you know, we know the rates of gestational diabetes are, they affect anywhere from 10 to like maybe 15, 18% of pregnancies that, you know, might even be higher. We don't quite have a great statistic on it, but there are a lot of these risk factors such as being of a certain age, really women over the age of the guidelines say 25. And most of us are. So everybody. (laughs) In my practice, I typically see it's a lot higher percentage over age of 30 or 35 being of certain family backgrounds, race and ethnicity backgrounds. So African-American, Hispanics, um, Asian-Americans tend to have higher risk factors for this. Having certain conditions like endocrine conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is tied up in kind of blood sugars and blood sugar control, that could put someone at a higher risk. Uh, Family history, if you have a parent or grandparent with type 2 or prediabetes or a mom who had gestational diabetes, you might be at a higher risk too. What if you previously had like a large gestational age baby? Yeah, that one too. So maybe your mom or or you yourself had a larger baby, but you didn't get diagnosed. You could potentially get diagnosed in the, in the next pregnancy too. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. I always remember like when you're studying about gestational diabetes and in the field, like the range of like what percent of women they think have it was so wide. It was like, how do they not know? Because there is widespread screening. Obviously not everybody seeks prenatal care, but most people who have prenatal care, you do get screened for it, right? So can you tell us about the screening or testing process to find out if you do have gestational diabetes? Right. So if you present to your midwife, to your OB, with none of those maybe traditional risk factors that we just mentioned. You don't have any of those. You're normally just going to get screened around that 26 to 28-week mark in your pregnancy. If you're someone who maybe had one or a few of those risk factors, you might be screened earlier in your pregnancy, sometimes as early as like 12, 14 weeks. I'm a big proponent of, for anyone, or especially if you have some of those risk factors, even getting checked prior to conceiving, you know, if three months before you want to conceive, you go to your primary care doctor, you get a hemoglobin A1C checked. That way, you know, kind of what's your status coming into the pregnancy. 
Because some of that could be a missed, possibly pre-diabetes diagnosis that like they didn't know about. Because that's the thing too, right? There's a lot of overlap. Like sometimes the diabetes quote unquote shows up during pregnancy, but it was pre-existing prior to that you just never knew because you weren't routinely looking for it or weren't involved in the healthcare system. So there's some overlap too, right? Like some of the gestational diabetes is actually either pre-diabetes or type two. Is That's possible, right? Exactly. Yep. They could have had signs of that insulin resistance going on, but just never screened for it earlier. Okay. So the screening at the 24 to 26 mark, like let's say new moms listening who we get so many pregnant moms listening who are like so organized, they're learning about infant feeding before they even have the baby. But like, what's the screening like? What do they do? So here in the U.S., what we have is what's called a two-step system. So the first step is you would go in and do a 50 gram glucose challenge test. So that's where you don't have to arrive fasting, but you'd come in, you would drink a the lovely glucola, sh- sweet, sugary drink, 50 grams of sugar. They'll check your blood sugar an hour later. If your blood sugar is over a certain threshold and you quote unquote fail, or I say just you have an elevated reading, they would recommend you go on to do step two, which is a three hour test where you would have to be fasting for that. They would draw your blood sugar from your, from your vein fasting. You drink the drink. It's a hundred grams of sugar. It's really, really sugary. And then they would check your blood sugar at one, two, and the three hour mark. And to have a positive diagnosis for gestational diabetes, two out of the four of those readings would need to be above the established goals. So that's why you have to stick around because they're constantly measuring what your blood sugar is at the different levels to see, does the sugar go into the cells like it's supposed to, or is it hanging out in the blood like it's not supposed to? Exactly. Okay. Everyone hates that drink, but I actually kind of liked it. Do you think that's weird? I didn't mind it either. I mean, it was sweet, but it reminded me of like something I probably had as a kid. Yeah, it tastes like it tastes like like gross off-brand like orange soda is the way I would describe it. That maybe they didn't put enough water that melted, and it was like you were drinking all the juice of like a melted popsicle. But some people like make. I mean, people make a big deal on social media, like women like barfing after it. I'm like, okay, if you can't handle the drink, like you're in for a nasty surprise when you have that baby, like. It gets a lot grosser. I have plenty of people that that happens to. And, you know, think about it. If you had like horrible nausea or something. No, I totally get it. I'm not making light of it. But really, if you throw up, if you throw up, like, what do they do? Like you come back because now you're not truly fasting and you might have absorbed some of it. So do you have to like start over the next day? So people always ask, yeah, what are the alternatives? You know, can they do the jelly bean? Can they do like a food-based test? We don't really have great data that those are super accurate to make a diagnosis. So what we do at my practice and what the literature kind of says is if you can't tolerate the glucola for any reason, do two weeks of home blood sugar monitoring with the finger sticks, not changing your diet, not doing anything differently than what you are, but checking your blood sugar four times a day, bringing it to your doctor, and they would kind of make a clinical decision based off of that. Oh, that sounds so much worse than like extra work. But I know you were sharing before, Casey, that with your second pregnancy, so your youngest is seven months old. Do you mind just sharing your experience? Because like you just went through this. Yeah. So yeah, I passed it with my first baby, but the second one I I did, I had an elevated one hour reading. And of course I went through that like, oh my gosh, how, why? Like you personally offended. I'm a registered dietitian who specializes in gestational diabetes. How did I possibly fail? But it just shows it can happen to anyone. So we were actually scheduled to leave on vacation like two days later. And I said, I want to know what's going on. I don't want to delay this and like have to wait till I come back to take the three hour test. So my doctor was fine with me actually just doing the home monitoring for two weeks. So I did that, you know, on our vacation. I did it when we come home. Funny story, even on our vacation, I ended up having COVID. And like, so my blood sugars, even with a COVID infection, were still fine. So I didn't end up actually having it 
per my doctor's evaluation. Did you have to go retest with the glucola when you got back from vacation? I did not. No. Nope. Oh, okay. If you had gestational diabetes with one pregnancy, will you definitely have it with another? Not definitely. No, we do know that that period in between your pregnancies is really important. And there are certain things that you could work on to get yourself in a good place to potentially, you know, prevent it from happening again, but it's not a guarantee. If you get a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, do you have to do insulin or can it be managed with diet and exercise? Are there meds that are safe during pregnancy? What's the protocol these days? We always start with diet and lifestyle. You know, people are referred to me, hopefully within 24, 48 hours of getting that diagnosis so that we can jump on that nutrition, look at their exercise, their sleep, their stress, all of these habits. And I would say the majority of women are able to manage it just through diet and lifestyle. Now, the placenta and the hormones sometimes just do their thing. They're really calling the shots. So some women may end up needing to take medication usually it's to address their fasting blood sugar. That's the one that can sometimes be high and a little bit more out of their control um, in terms of what diet can influence. So medication options could be, there is one oral medication that, well, there's two oral medications, but the most common one that we would use for pregnancy might be metformin. So that's like the very popular, you know, diabetes drug, even outside of pregnancy. So there could be that it does come with some side effects um, and it just might not be effective for a very long time. So you could be on it for a while, but then ultimately your doctor say, Hey, the metformin's not really working anymore. Then they would switch you to insulin. So it's usually if your fasting is elevated, you would take an injection of insulin at bedtime to help calm things down overnight. Some women need insulin during the day. If their meals are giving them trouble, they might have to take some insulin right before they eat too. I never had gestational diabetes, but I can imagine that if I did, I would be highly motivated to try to fix things with diet and exercise before going to meds, certainly insulin. Do you find that that's the case? You mentioned that one of the things you love about your job is that your patient client base is so highly motivated. Like a lot of them worked really hard to get pregnant or they want, they're excited about this pregnancy or they're resigned to like, hey, I'm going to figure this thing out. Do they work really hard at the diet and lifestyle stuff more so than maybe your traditional population of persons with diabetes? I think it's also because like you're on the clock, so to speak, like you get this diagnosis at 28 weeks and you're just like, oh my gosh, I got to work on this now hard and fast. So I do find that they're really motivated. And some people, you know, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I want to see, let's say they come to me and their fasting blood sugar is already high. I don't want to say and write them off like, oh, it's just high. We're going on, you know, medication. Yeah. Let's watch and wait. Like there's no time. I give them like a week or two and we're going to pull out all the stops. But then sometimes women hit a point where like they're going through, I call it like the gymnastics routine. They're bending over backwards. They're doing all of these crazy strategies. They're maybe waking themselves up early to try to get a good fasting reading. They're doing too much. That's not sustainable and it's not good for their lifestyle. It's not good for their mental health. So at a point we have a conversation of like, okay, you're literally doing everything you possibly can and things still aren't well controlled. Let's move on to medication. It is a good, safe option. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Besides baby led weaning, what other type of podcasts do you like to listen to? Well, if you're into true crime and you also dig traveling, I want to tell you about a new podcast you are going to love. The new podcast is called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that all take place on vacation. So the show is hosted by a true crime fanatic and her comedy writer husband, and he has a TV producing partner. So Slaycation brings a totally unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, what the heck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong from 
from the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, their two recently engaged lovebirds, whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended up underwater. Every episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that will intrigue you. I think you're going to love the discussion between the longtime married couple and the business partners. They also happen to be an Emmy-nominated TV producers. Every episode of Slaycation also includes humor and takeaway and travel tips that are going to keep your next family vacation from becoming your last. So if you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's say worst case scenario, moms does not have prenatal screening, does have gestational diabetes, doesn't know it, ergo is not doing anything about it. If you don't manage gestational diabetes, what are the impacts on mom and baby's health? Yeah, so when the blood sugars stay high, one of the big things that happens, how it affects baby is all that sugar is just getting crossed back over the placenta. The baby's body, their pancreas will sense that and start to make its own insulin. Insulin is also a fat storage hormone. So the baby starts to kind of put on more body fat a little too quickly. So they're going to get a little larger. We don't necessarily want that to happen because it could cause problems come delivery, right? Really big baby, usually with big shoulders. If that's a vaginal delivery, their shoulders could get stuck, you know, which causes maybe more bleeding, more tearing for mom. Could mean that the baby just can't descend properly. So they have to do a C-section or things like that. It also is just stressful for the baby and the mom to be exposed to such high glucose levels. Mom is at higher risk for preeclampsia if her blood sugars are uncontrolled or even preterm birth. The baby, um, you know, we're kind of doing like fetal programming, right? So we're stressing out their shiny brand new little pancreas in utero. We don't want to do that. We want to keep their pancreas from working too hard while they're in the womb. Um, the other risk is then once they are, you know, finally delivered, baby's here, when they cut the cord, they baby has a risk of actually having their blood sugar drop too low because it can't regulate its blood sugar super well because it's been in that environment for so long. Pumping out all that insulin that now they don't have a sugar source for it if they go on your you know typical infant milk diet, right? Exactly. Okay. And then what about the risk for mom? If Is she at higher risk for diabetes later in life if she's had gestational diabetes? That's what we're finding. Yeah. So from the research, it's really, it's a big range though. Like we said, with who's diagnosed, it's a big range of who goes on to develop diabetes and when. Um, I don't want to quote the exact statistics, but I think a big part of what could lead someone to have that diabetes risk in the future is a lot of the times, you know, what habits are kept in the postpartum period, you know, what happens with postpartum weight loss, not to say that you have to lose all the weight. That's not, you know, a realistic expectation for a lot of us, but kind of getting back to a healthy range, healthy diet habits, moving your body that can help to prevent that risk, but it can be significantly high for some populations to go on and develop type two later on. Let's say there's a mom newly diagnosed with gestational diabetes, maybe 28 weeks, it's her first pregnancy. She comes to see you highly motivated to do the diet and lifestyle stuff. From a diet standpoint, what are the like most basic recommendations that you're making to a mom in that situation? Yeah, I usually sum it up in almost like two words, two phrases. So balance is critical. Learning how to balance your sources of carbohydrate at your meals and your snacks with the other nutrients. So your fats, your proteins, and your fiber. We need to create that balance. And then the other aspect is going to be kind of personalizing the portion size for you. So I can't sit here and say every pregnant person that I see is going to tolerate the same amount of carbohydrate at a meal or at a snack. 
through the glucose monitoring, we're going to learn what's the portion size that your body can personally handle. So you mentioned the carbohydrate. So obviously there is some math involved here, right? We don't like to give as a dietitian's prescriptive diet plans, but in the case of, hey, you got a few weeks here to get things under control. If you haven't been paying any attention to your carbohydrate, do you give them like a set number of grams of carbohydrate and then work within their desired meal plan to kind of spread that out and space it out throughout the day? Yeah. So we talk in kind of gram speak, but then we can also look at portion sizes through like measuring cup speak, or even I'll just use my hands as my visual with them. So I, as a framework guide women that most of them can tolerate about 30 to 45 grams of carbohydrate per meal. So we want them evenly spaced out throughout the day, more or less. Some women can be a lot more sensitive to carbs in the morning. So they might, you know, fall on the lower end of that, but 30 to 45 what that looks like. If you don't have like the nutrition label in front of you to reference how much is the piece of bread, typically 45 grams is about a cup or like a fistful size, or it's going to take up like the quarter of your plate. So that's what I would say is kind of the upper limit. And then we modify it based on your blood sugars snacks, you know, usually guiding people on a little bit less 15, 20 grams of carbs. I find that those often are, you know, your cracker or your rice cake or something that has a label. So you can quickly just kind of reference what that total carb is for a portion. Do you find that for most of your patients, the morning carbohydrate results in higher blood sugar spikes during gestational diabetes? Yes, we're a lot more carb intolerant, kind of, you know, there's a lot more insulin resistance first thing in the morning. So I'm always encouraging people if they can to start out with a really protein rich breakfast, usually things like eggs or, you know, yogurt bowl types of situations or cottage cheese, protein shake or smoothie, those go over a lot better than just like oatmeal would. So if a mom, a lot of our moms listening, they've, they already have one baby, a lot of them, but a lot of them are going to go on to have more babies. And so if they didn't have gestational diabetes in the first pregnancy, in the second pregnancy, they, they don't, they get a high reading, as you said, they don't fail, but then they eventually get diagnosed with gestational diabetes. What should they do? Cause I know like I have a friend in the influencer space who just got diagnosed with gestational and she's like, I can't believe this. Like I did everything right. Like she's like personally offended by having a gestational diabetes diagnosis. I'm like, you need to get over it. You have a little bit of time here not to panic you, but what, what are the next steps then? Yeah, they didn't do anything wrong, you know? So hopefully they can get set up with a dietitian or a diabetes educator who could work with them specifically to make it a personalized plan. You know, there are some great, you know, resources out there. I have a free downloadable resource. There's other programs out there, out there as a starting point. But kind of to recap, yeah, what I had said before, I think the main thing, what I would start to focus on from day one is looking at your meals and snacks and asking yourself, are they balanced? And making sure there's a protein element in all or most of those eating occasions. And I like that you mentioned seeing a diabetes educator. So registered dietitian, just so you guys know, there's a few credentialed professionals who can be certified diabetes educators, right? It's what pharmacists, doctors, nurses, and dietitians. Is that correct, Casey? That sounds about right. Yeah. I think that was, I think I remember, but so not just anybody can go be a diabetes educator. So you have to have that first credential, but then for the food piece, it makes the most sense that the registered dietitian is the one providing the medical nutrition therapy. So you would probably need to be getting a referral from your OB. And I think it's really cool, Casey, that you actually work in a high risk OB practice. You're right there for them to refer to you. What if patients are at a regular OB that doesn't have a dietitian at their practice? How do they find a diabetes educator? Who's also a registered dietitian? Yeah. So, you know, they could go onto the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website. They could go onto the Certified Diabetes Care and Education Specialist website and, you know, find a directory. 
look on the map of who's in your area, you know, depend on, are you willing to pay out of pocket? Do you want to go through your insurance? But those I think would be the first starting points to find someone. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Okay, Casey, and as a dietitian specializing in diabetes, I'm just curious to know your thoughts on like the use of like widespread use of diabetes drugs right now for weight loss, like in the mainstream. Like this just, I mean, I feel like I've known about these drugs forever as a diabetes educator. Now all of a sudden they're like literally in like subway ads in New York City, I know is a big deal this week. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is this good for business or bad for business? Like, what do you think? As much as I want to try to drown out that noise, yes, it's like found me. Like, I feel like I've it's inundated my feeds everywhere. Everyone's talking about these. You know, at the end of the day, how sustainable is it to right. be on one of these drug, drugs long-term? They also come with really intense side effects. You know, I had plenty of patients use these for diabetes management and they had no appetite. They felt horrible. They felt nauseous. They lost a ton of weight and they, you know, oh, you might think that's so great to get complimented on that, but they felt horrible while taking it. You know, a lot of my patients would start it, but end up stopping. So I think to use it outside of blood sugar management, you really have to ask yourself like, well, what is this accomplishing for me now? And even like going forward in the long term. Well, Casey, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating experience. I think gestational diabetes can be really confusing, but you have just a beautiful way of making it very straightforward. I think your patients are so lucky to have you as a resource. I know you also have a private practice. So tell our audience where they can go to learn more about gestational diabetes from you. I do. So to work with me one-on-one, I have an online virtual practice. So you can head to my website, um, which is caseysideandnutrition.com. So there you can find all the info I do have on my website on the resources section. There is my eat well with gestational diabetes downloadable guide. It's a whole resource suite with shopping lists. There's kind of a nutrition 101 recap, everything. Most of the resources that I give to kind of my one-on-one clients, just without the personalized support from me. So you can download that. I'm also in about a month going to be hosting and launching a masterclass specifically to talk about how to control and lower your fasting blood sugar in pregnancy. So that's really exciting. And if anyone needs help with that, they should stay tuned for that offer too. Wonderful. And where are you on Instagram? Yes. Instagram, I am at eat.well.together. I love it. Thank you so much, Casey. And I'll link up all of your references in the show notes for this episode at blwpodcast.com as well. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Casey, learning about gestational diabetes and managing blood sugar. As someone who's worked with the adult population for type 2 and type 1 diabetes management, I know how discouraging that work can be sometimes, especially if your patients and clients like don't want to be there and aren't listening or don't care what you have to say. And I loved how passionate she is about this topic. And she was sharing that one of the reasons why she really loves the work that she does is because her audience is very motivated. Like they're kind of under the gun or under the clock, as she said. And it is a really stressful time if you have gestational diabetes, but there are things you can do. And it is important to be working with a credentialed feeding expert, a dietitian who specializes in diabetes education or has the CDCES credential. And so I'm gonna link to all of the resources that Casey shared in the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 328. Thank you to our partners at Airwave Media. If you guys like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out some of the podcasts from Airwave. We're online at blwpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 